Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this Lord's Day. Thank you for the ways in which you continue to remind us week in and week out about the, the good news that we find in our Lord and Savior. Thank you that we have heard your word and we have tasted at the table these um, audible and visible reminders that you are for us and that um, you love us. And I pray that during this uh, small amount of time that we have together, that you will open our hearts and our minds uh, to understand and to perceive and to follow after those uh, who have gone before us. And we're grateful for them, Lord. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So you all like dead Swiss theologians. Is that why you're here? <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, let, let me uh, A few words of, of introduction, and, and then we'll start throwing things against the wall. We'll see what sticks. Um, when I was in college... Um, studying the Bible, actually, even as an undergrad, I I was going through a phase, and it wasn't it's not it wasn't a bad phase, but it was, I was going through a phase where I was reading kind of everything that this Baptist Calvinist uh, John Piper. Anybody, anybody know this this name, John Piper? So I, I was reading. If, if he wrote it, I read it, and I was it, this was during a sort of a burgeoning um theological and intellectual my interests were just peaking at this time um you know so i i look back at these books and i i giggle now you know your books become a kind of testament to your life i don't know if you feel that way about your books um, um i have I, I'm, this is i'm off track already but i have a uh, i have a uh, I have, a, I have a book on my, uh, you like this one, Matt. I have a book that I uh, ordered. I, I don't read book reviews like in the Wall Street Journal because I, I buy all these books on Amazon and they just sort of amass. But one of them is um, on Samuel Johnson and his life of reading. It's a fascinating book. Just the kind of reading that he did. And it's basically a kind of intellectual biography on Samuel Johnson from the marginalia of the notes and the kind of reading that he did. You know, the famous sort of uh, the progenitor of the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, so for me, you know, my my books are my this, the tools of my trade, um, and now my books kind of give a little bit of my own history. It's kind of fun to go back um, and read my 19 and 20 year old self and the, the notes that I wrote in the side. Um, I, that was a time, by the way, when I was still using yellow highlighter. I despise that now, but at this time I was using yellow highlighter, and and, and I, I would see in the margin, excellent, you know, two exclamation points, um, really good, wow, you know that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, so I'm all that there. Uh, but John Piper mentioned something, um, you know, when I was sort of listening to everything that he said and read everything that he wrote. He said it's a good idea for. Christians, and he was speaking primarily to future pastors, to think about identifying a figure um, that you can make a friend, a theological figure, preferably someone who's dead, um, that you can make a friend for the rest of your life. Uh, and that that hit a nerve for 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 those of you who know Piper. For him, that friend has been Jonathan Edwards. I mean, that's a good one, actually. Um, I think you know if I were to pull Gil Cracky out of the audience and say, who's your friend? We'd all know it's probably you know, Martin Luther has been a lifelong friend. Um, for me, I've had, you know, I've had a, a couple of friends, but one for sure that has stood the test of time for me is, is the theologian Karl Barth. Um, Barth had got his fangs into me. Um, I'm, I'm convinced, this is, this is again off the record, I'm convinced that I only got the gig at Beeson 
um, which was, in hindsight, I should have never gotten the job that I'm in, but, you know, here, I got it. Um, <laughs> because Dr. George, my, my boss, and I were sitting in his office, and we just began to talk about our affection for Carl Bart. No, I'm, I'm convinced that that's the only reason I got into place. Um, and I'll tell you why. I'm going to give you a little bit of a background on Bart, and I'm going to tell you why I'm taken with him. And I'll also let you know that I'm probably more critical of him now than I ever have been. I mean, so it's part of the, the, the nature of, I think, having a long-term affectionate walk with a theologian is to grow in critical awareness of some of the, some of the maybe dangerous paths or, or poor paths that they, that they took, knowing that we take our own poor paths as well. I mean, there's some humility in this. Um, so why, why Karl Barth? Well, I, as, as many of you know, so I, and again, this is kind of intellectual autobiography on, on, on myself, but I, you know, I grew up in a world where Karl Barth was public enemy number one. All right? So I grew up in a very conservative, uh, fundamentalist world. I mean, we used to joke as undergrads, not Karl Barth, but Karl Barth. I mean, that was the kind of his bad. <laughs> um, and I was hardwired in such a way, and this is good and bad, I guess, but I was always hardwired in such a way that I couldn't just take it for granted when someone would say, that so-and-so figure is bad, I would I needed to go and investigate this. So here I was as an undergrad, and I remember just sort of spending time going through um, Karl Barth's magnum opus, the Church Dogmatics, and I couldn't get it. In other words, like I was, uh, it was beyond me. Um, but I was reading it, and and all of a sudden I thought, there's something special about this. Um, he can't be as bad as everyone's saying, but I'm gonna have to put that on the shelf. Then I'm in St. Andrews, Scotland. I'm doing my terminal degree there, and uh, my, I, my, my closest friends during my time of postgraduate study, many of them were, were studying theology, not Bible. And so a group of them were getting together, and they invited me into this little cadre of, of um, uh, this little reading group to read uh, Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics, Volume 4.1. It's like, can it be more boring, a kind of title? But that's it. Church Dogmatics 4.1. The Doctrine of Reconciliation. Um, and, you know, here we were. Um, you know, I'm a Bible guy. I parse Hebrew verbs. I look at Greek, you know, syntactical patterns. And all of a sudden, I'm reading this, you know, mid-20th century theologian on the atonement. And my world just begins to spin. It really begins to spin. Primarily for this reason. Um, when I entered into the world of reading Bart for the first time, I entered into a world that was fertile and was passionate and was filled with spiritual vigor. I don't know how else to say it, but um, reading Bart for the first time in that kind of environment, though I had fiddled with him before and read him in seminary, but this was the first sort of deep reading, um, Jesus was ministered to me. I mean, I think that's probably... For, for most of you and for me as well, if there's a particular author or Christian author that you like and you tend to follow this person or you read their work as much as you can, the background story of that is often this person feeds Jesus to me. Um, and that, that's what, it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm taken back or blown away by um, the high level of discourse, although that's certainly present as well. But I'm hungry for Jesus, and I'm not sure why, um, but this figure, um, though he, to, to quote Hebrews chapter 11, though he is dead, he's still continuing to speak. And he's not speaking where um, I have a, an end to him, himself, the person himself, 
but the end is is Jesus Christ. So Bart has been a longtime companion of mine um, and a friend, and probably will be for um, till till I die. Now, with that said, let me tell you a little bit about him because I realize some of you have no idea who Carl um, Barf is. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Carl Bart was a theologian. A German uh, taught in the German university system uh, for most of the first part of the 20th century, and he died in April of 1968. Right, I'm going to give you a very brief outline of his career because it is fascinating. Uh, Bart studied under the best of the German liberal theological tradition, and when I say the best, I mean that sincerely. Um, there's a, now I'm, I break out in hives, and as I, as I age, and I need to be careful about this a little bit, but as I age, my, my, my rashes get more red um, with liberal theology because I think liberal theology tends to be quite destructive in the life of the church. I'm just going to say that out. I, as, as I age, I become less and less patient with it. But with that said, um, the, the German theological tradition, the liberal theological tradition, was something to be admired. I mean, incredible figures that arose. Figures like, I'm going to toss names out to you, and if you're looking for pet names, these are good ones. Fr uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher. Well, if you're going to use, let that be a guinea pig or something like that. Don't, don't, don't give it. Anyway, Schleiermacher. Um, Adolf von Harnack. Um, uh, Hermann Gunkel. Uh, Albrecht Ritschel. I mean, these are the names that are in the, kind of the, they're, they're in the pantheon of the great, uh, German theological liberals that had, in effect, and again, this is going to be reductionistic and it can be debated, but in effect had reduced theology to anthropology, to the, to the study of humanity. In other words, theology and the study of religion, and this is one of the reasons why you'll find Karl Barth being so dead set against religion as a human phenomenon, because religion is... Um, again, finding that spark of the divine within humanity itself. Where is God found? God is found in the, action, in, in the interaction between sister and brother and brother and sister within uh, the community of faith. That's where, that's where the resurrection is to be found. Um, and for example, to give you a sense of this, Friedrich Schleiermacher, again, a very important theologian, the, the father of kind of liberal theology in, in Germany at the University of Berlin, in his classic work on the Christian faith, the doctrine of the Trinity is the last part. It's it. It's the end. We're going to do all this stuff, and then we'll do the Trinity at the end. Just to kind of give you a sense of what Karl Barth was leaning against, when Barth writes his doctrine, his church dogmatics, he takes the Trinity from the end and puts it smack dab at the beginning. In other words, this is about God. And our understanding of God is going to shape how we're going to do all of our theology. And that's not going to be the kind of post-facto epilogue at the end of, of our theological journey. Um, so Bart was trained under these theologians. Um, he studied under Adolf von Harnack. He, he studied under Hermann Gunkel, the Old Testament. These are people that I read to this day. He, they were his professors. But then Bart becomes, and some of you know this narrative, so forgive me for repeating, but then Bart becomes a pastor. And this is what I, I, I like about his story. Um, and I, I tell this to my students at Beeson. You know, the students will come into my office and they say, you know, I really love this, this sort of intellectual environment here. I want to go and get a PhD um, and do this for the rest of my life. And my, my colleague and I, Frank Thielman, we, we jokingly say that we take a, on the ministry of discouragement in those conversations. <laughs> um, like, listen, right? Um, not a lot of jobs. 
Um, a lot of money, a lot of debt can be incurred. You're going into the humanities. You're not going to make any money. Uh, you know, so you need to think and pray long and hard about it. And frankly, the people, the students that I, I can't talk out of it, right, with all that, are probably the ones that need to go do it. But, you know, that, but, so we take on the ministry of discouragement. But I do remind students who come into my office, Carl Bart never got a PhD. He, he doesn't have a formal PhD. Um, Jonathan Edwards never got a PhD. Um, you know, one of my one of my colleagues jokingly said that he well, it wasn't a joke. He had a he had a professor at the University of Denver um, who ne- who did not have a PhD either. And when someone asked this, he, apparently he was a luminary in his field. When someone asked him, "Why did you never get a PhD?" His response was, "Well, who was going to examine me?" <laughs> That's one fact, I guess. Um, so anyway, Bart, Bart never never got a PhD. He became a pastor. Um, and he was ministering in a small parish in Saffinville, um, and he uh, had a crisis of pastoral ministry. It was a crisis. The crisis was the liberal theology that I was taught and now am meant to communicate in the pulpit week in and week out is not effective in the sense of bringing a thus saith the Lord moment. And in fact, all I'm able to do with how I've been trained is to help people come into a deeper encounter with themselves. The kind of existential move that it shapes so much of theology in that moment. Now, not just theology, philosophy and psychology. I mean, that sort of existential turning in on the self. That's what I'm able to do as a pastor. I, I don't know how to help people meet God. That was the crisis. How do people come into an encounter with, with the living Lord? And so the, the classic moment here, right? I mean, you, just, you have to love it, right? Here's a man that went to the best of the theological schools in Germany. And he says, so I sat under an apple tree and with a Bible in one hand and a notebook in the other. And I thought, well, I'll give the Bible a try. All right. Um, and, and Bart's, in the, in the famous lecture that he gave early in his career where he's shifting from this sort of liberal theological tradition Back to something that's more defined by traditional Christian orthodoxy, Bart delivers a, a lecture, 1918, 1919, I believe, entitled The New World Within the Bible. Now, most of the English translations of that say The Strange New World of the Bible, but the German, the German title was just The New World of the Bible. And this is what Bart said in that lecture. It's fascinating. Bart said, When I went into the Bible, And I began to engage the Bible with a fresh set of lenses. What I found was that the Bible was not a mirror of my best moral self. It wasn't that. The Bible was an invitation beyond myself into the world of the living God. The Bible is about God. And it's derivatively about me. And that changed everything. Bart wrote a commentary on the book of Romans. Um, that had been described as the bombshell that fell on the playground of the German liberal theological tradition, the impact of one commentary on Romans, on the whole landscape of European continental theological thought, um, cannot be overestimated. I cannot tell you even in some of my own study with Old Testament figures that I like, like Gerhard von Rod. That's a name that's, you know, I, I, I like von Rod. He's a German the Old Testament theologian taught at Heidelberg. And guess what, how von Rod went into theology? In his youth group as a teenager, 
They were reading Karl Barth's Epistle to the Romans, his commentary, and it, and it drew him into another world. That story could be repeated multiple times where young people um, encountered the, uh, Barth's commentary in the Romans, and not only did they encounter that commentary, they encountered the risen Lord and the, and the power of it, the effect of it, to use technical theological jargon, the charismatic force of it could not be escaped. Um, so that's Bart. Bart um, was a pastor. Um, and then he was called from his pastoral ministry to be um, the first chair of Reformed theology at the University of Göttingen, which is in the Hanoverian region of, of Germany. Now, this is fascinating, right? The first chair of Reformed theology. Um, now, for those of you who know something about the German theological schools, and I'll give you a story on this to illustrate it. I actually spent six months with my family at that same University in Göttingen in 2012. Matter of fact, we lived in the Ostviertel um, in the eastern quarter of um, Göttingen. I would walk into the Theologicum every day, and I would literally pass Karl Barth's house on the way every day. I'd wave, "Hello, sir," and then I kind of move on. That's where he lived. This is where his whole sort of theological life started. And here's the funny part of it, right? Barth took that chair of Reformed theology in a Lutheran context, right? So that always makes things kind of Spicy, all right? Um, so he's in a Lutheran context um, at this university, by the way, where they teach all kinds of critical schools. And there's not one can't say that the theological school at the University of Göttingen is marked by any kind of evangelical piety or devotion or even um, uh, uh, biblical fidelity. But they fired somebody recently, within the past decade. They fired somebody at the University of Göttingen because they denied justification by faith alone. I mean, so we're talking, so in other words, it's still, some of this stuff still matters over there. And here comes Karl Barth into the chair of Reformed theology. And this is what he says in his own journals and his own diaries. And I knew nothing about the subject. I mean, he hadn't been trained in that. I mean, to read Calvin? Who's Calvin? Uh, Luther? I've been, you know, I've been reading Schleiermacher and Harnack. I haven't been reading Calvin. And so what happens with, with Barth is he takes this chair, um, completely unprepared for it and becomes one of the most productive and thoughtful expositors on reformed thought because he was doing it on the anvils of the crisis of teaching. Now, I, I, some of you can appreciate this. who have been in that world. I remember this coming into peace in my first... I, I mean, don't tell my students. I'm telling about this. Don't tell my students. But, you know, I, I was a new... I did my work primarily in the New Testament. That was what I did my postgraduate degree in. I did some work in the Old Testament as well, but primarily in the New Testament. Then I come to Beeson, and I have to teach Hebrew. All right? And I can remember being two weeks ahead of my students. I'm kind of reinforced. Two weeks! I can remember, and some of the more bright students would raise questions. Um, well, what about, what happens when da-da-da-da-da goes, I'm, I, I'm, I'm I can say this now, but, but uh, I would say, don't worry, you have enough on your plate now, don't worry about that, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to sweat that, um, you know, we'll get that, I was like, I, I don't know, I'm only two weeks ahead of you, so don't, don't ask me right now. No, and this is what, this is what, what, this was the life of Karl Barth in those years in Göttingen, when he's writing these books, the theology of the Reformed Confessions, the theology of John Calvin, the theology of Zwingli, some of these some of these works continue to stand as great monuments of historical theology. And Bart was writing them because he had to lecture tomorrow, right? I, I I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have a lecture hall 
filled with students, and I've got to talk to them tomorrow. I mean, and the jokes that he even says, I mean, he's, we're talking about ink wet on the page as he rushes in, into the lecture hall to give this up. And, and that, I think, is one of the reasons why those works, when you read them, have a certain kind of energy to them. They're energetic. Because Bart's encountering something, he's encountering the teachers that he wishes that he had. That's what you find. And he's finding a resource there that really kind of blows his hair back. For example, he describes John Calvin as the Himalayas. He speaks Chinese, that's what he says. He's beyond me. I can spend, he says, I could spend the rest of my life just reading Calvin and trying to come to terms with Calvin um, as he kind of enters into the theology of Calvin for students. That's, that's the language of someone's affections and intellect that have been raised at the same time which I think is part of my own story with my encounter with Bart. The sort of theologically um, interested mind and the interested affections are meeting one another. And you find that in the writing of Karl Barth. So he's, he's doing that kind of lecturing at the University of Göttingen. He ends up going to the University of Bonn in the 1930s, and that's when all hell breaks loose, right? Um, they have to make an allegiance to the National Socialists there, to the Fuhrer. Uh, Karl Barth refused to do that and was then kicked out of uh, his post there at the University of Bonn and then spent the rest of his teaching career um, in Switzerland at the University of Basel, uh, dying in 1968. So that's just a little bit of, the, of a background on, on Karl Barth. Um, people often ask me, if I were to read something of him, what would you recommend? I'll, I'll say this to you, two things, um, if you're interested. One thing I would recommend for you to read is Karl Barth's Dogmatics in Outline. Again, these are not sexy titles, I'm afraid, okay? But Dogmatics in Outline, and I'll just go and encourage you, skip the first chapter. Just don't even read it. It's a long chapter on theology as science. It's boring. Uh, it's interesting, but it's boring. Skip it. The rest of the book is Barth's Exposition of the Apostles' Creed. Um, and it's actually quite good. If you're going to I'd like an entryway to Barth, I'd say that. The other one would be to read um, his swan song, which I believe is in our bookstore. All right, His swan song, the last thing that he wrote before he died, were lectures that he delivered here in the United States. Bart was fascinated by the Civil War, the American Civil War. Read its history. I'm convinced one of the only reasons Bart visited the United States was so he could see Gettysburg and Antietam. That's what he wanted to do. I mean, he, he, there's pictures of him firing a musket. And, no, he's just, he's, he was fascinated by the American Civil War. Um, so, but when he came on the lecture circuit here in the United States, he presented a set of lectures entitled Evangelical Theology. Um, that was my, one of my first reads of Bart, was Evangelical Theology. And I encourage everyone, so if you want to get in and find, again, intellectual vigor and passion meeting one another, start there. For example, his first chapter is entitled in that book, Wonder. Wonder. And if you kind of read into that, Bart says, when a theologian has, and, and by the way, don't let that big term scare you. All of us are seeking to order our thoughts in our lives in accord with the reality of God and his revelation to us in his son. That's what a theologian is. He said, when a theologian has lost a sense of wonder at, at the object of his study or her study, when that has been lost, then the theologian has then um, betrayed his or her task, right? Wonder, and this is the this is someone writing this in his 80s, right? So he's been doing this a long time, a lot of writing, a lot of hard work. Wonder, passion. Here's another uh, line from Evangelical Theology that would make a great T-shirt, right? There might be great lawyers, 
There might be great doctors and there might be great statesmen, but there can only be little theologians, right? Um, I say that for pastors, for anyone whose whose work is a, is a life of the study of the Word, we can only be little, right? Because of the enormity of what it is that we're actually uh, serving. So that's a little bit of a sense of, of Karl Barth's life. Um, today, um, what time is it? Oh, that's bad news. Um, today, um, I want to just spend a few minutes talking with you about what Bart, if he were here, would tell you is the most important aspect of your study of the Bible. Okay. Now, and then next week, when we come back together, we'll talk about um, Karl Barth's principles of Bible reading. Um, and I'm, and I'm going to use um, a particular text, probably either Jeremiah or Barth's reading of Job, to illustrate um, what we'll do. But we'll, we'll get to that next week. Here is where Barth in several places in his magnum opus, The Church Dogmatics, will say something to the following. Number one, here's the tension we live in. God has made himself genuinely known in the Son. I want you to hold that. God has made himself genuinely known in the Son, in, in Jesus, by the Spirit. That's a Trinitarian view of the revelation of God to humanity. Now, that little statement right there is probably um, the backbone of the greatest of the theological controversies for the last uh, 1,500 years. God has given himself to genuinely be known. Now, we need to talk about this because this is a classic tenet of Reformed and Lutheran thought. God wants us to know who he is, but he does not leave us to ourselves to figure out who he is. Now, this is important because Karl Barth, as a theologian, is a theologian on the far side of modernity. That's what makes him different um, than a Lutheran or Calvin, who were before modernity in the 1500s, right? Barth's on the far side. So Kant and Hegel, they've, they've been around and they're dead and gone, but their influence still looms. Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, they're, they're, well, Nietzsche's down the road, right? They're, so they're still around. So he's having to deal with these philosophical questions. And here is the primary philosophical question that Kant... Immanuel Kant leaves the, the philosophical tradition of, of, of the continent. Here it is. What can truly be known? And how can it be known? How can we know things? And this is where Kant, and I don't, don't, don't let me lose you, but this is where Kant says, we only know our experience of things. We only know the phenomenon of a thing. But we can never really know the thing itself. That's just beyond the realm of of human experience and human cognitive categories. And think about that in relationship to God, right? We might have some kind of a phenomenon, some kind of encounter with, with, with a God, but to really know who God is, humanity can never have that privilege. It's, it's, it's beyond the reach of humanity's greatest intellectual achievements or even experiential moments. We cannot know God in himself. And you know what Bart says? Bart says, and, and Luther, I think, and Calvin as well, would, would applaud him here. They would say, you know what, Kant? You're right. You're right. It's one of the reasons why religion's so bad. Think the Tower of Babel. Because left to humanity's own devices, we do not have the ability to, to build our way up with whatever devices we might think of to, to encounter God as God truly is. We can't do that. In fact... Whenever humanity does do that, begins to project 
or construct God according to the categories of their own minds or their own experiences. Boy, this is huge in our world right now. Or their own experiences. The end game there, the necessary end game there is idolatry. There's no other path that you will go to when you begin to construct God according to the categories of our own mind, left on autopilot with our own experiences. The end game is God becomes an idol that we have constructed, often a projection of our best selves, who we really wish we were. We just kind of amp it up a little bit, and boy, there's there's God in, in the making. And uh, Kant says we can't know God. Calvin would say you're right on that, actually. Um, and Bart comes along and says Calvin, I mean Kant was right. We cannot build a path to God left on our own. But this is where Kant. That's where Kant stopped. And this is where Christian theology begins. Right? God has not left us to our own devices to figure out who He is. And here's a classic line that I think encapsulates so much, maybe, this is dangerous, but maybe Bart's theology in, in, in total, in the whole. But God has spoken. That's crucial. We can't build up to figure out who he is. But God hasn't left us with that, only op- that option alone. God has spoken. He has articulated. He has verbalized. He has given himself to be known. And this is a big, big theological point. And in his giving himself to be known to us, he is making a move to redeem us. When God speaks, God reconciles, God redeems. God has given himself to be known to us. And God has spoken to us in the Son. That's why word theology is so crucial throughout the whole of the Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God speaks, God communicates, and again, to use Calvin's terms, God prattles to us like we're babies. I mean, He, he goo-goo-gagas to us. And this, and this is crucial. Why? Because God gives Himself to be known truly, but not exhaustively. And that's, that's a very crucial distinction. God gives himself to be known truly. How God has revealed himself to us in this, to us in the Son is a true revelation of who God really is. God's not playing smoke and mirrors games. He's wanting you to know, this is my Son, this is who I am. You want to know who I am? Look long and hard at Jesus. But at the same time, your knowledge of me is not exhaustive and will never be the same as my knowledge of myself. These are, these are sort of big theological categories. So that's one thing, right? God gives himself to be known. But here's the other part of it. But in his giving himself to be known, we cannot escape our humanity. We can't escape our fallenness. We can't escape the fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that right now we still see through a veil darkly, but then face to face. That's the tension that we live in, I believe. God has given himself to be known, but at the same time, as human fallen characters, we are in need because our knowledge is not full and complete and our knowledge is still shaped and, and, um, and marred by the fact that we are, here's the you know, Advent bumper sticker, simul eustus et peccator, right? We're sinners and just at the same time. We don't escape our sinfulness in our actions and, by the way, in our knowing as well. We don't escape it. So what do we do in that tension? Right? And this is where Bart comes in, and it's one of my favorite parts of him. 
This is where Bart comes in and says, well, I want to leave you with what I think is the most important discipline of your life of Bible study. Now, before I answer that, some of you probably already know where I'm going. Before I answer that, how would you answer that question if Jill or Jane on the street said, I want um, to learn how to be a better reader of the Bible? I mean, maybe we'd say with some lay academy classes at BC you come to, how about a Bible study here? How about that? I mean, we would start to give sort of technical answers to that. All of that's very important. And by the way, that's how I pay the mortgage, so I'm a big fan of all that. Um, So, I mean, that's how we would lead. Bart would not lead with that. And by the way, neither would Cranmer and neither would Augustine, who we talked about last week. Right? How would they lead? They would lead with the necessity and the priority of prayer. Now, let me talk about that for a second, because this can get kind of airy-fairy, pious. In other words, I'm going to go off to some other abstract land of prayer, removed from the material realities of the world around me, words, verbs, nouns, syntax, all the stuff you got to do when you read, whether you're thinking about it or not, you're doing all that when you read. So am I, am I sort of escaping that? No. In that book, Evangelical Theology, I was telling you about, Bart describes the, the task of a theologian, and by the way, I don't, of a Christian, of you, readers of the Bible, as orare et labore, labor, work, and prayer. And not necessarily in this sort of linear move from one to the other, but the task of the study of the Bible is prayer and labor at the same time and all the time. This is one of the great achievements, I think, of the Reformation, in this year of the Reformation. Here's one of the great achievements, and this is what Bart, I think, is pressing into. You know, the Reformers, Luther, the Magisterial Reformers, and I'll put Calvin maybe in the second tier, but these, these figures that we know, the names we bandy about around here a lot, these figures were, how does one say, at a particular moment in intellectual history where their ability to read text was much better than it was 100 and 200 years ago. I mean, Calvin's ability to engage Hebrew... I've been writing a commentary on Micah this summer. I'm about to pray for me. I should finish by Friday. Pray for me. Um, but I've been working on that. And I'm reading Calvin. And here's Cal- I mean, Calvin's making these, these insights, grammatical insights on the base, basis of the Hebrew text. And I'm thinking, I've got all these computer programs. I've got books everywhere. How did he do that? I mean, it's incredible. So don't think for a second that the reformers downplayed the good, hard work of reading text well and closely. But for all of that, and this is what I think is their lasting achievement to us and their legacy, but for all of that, Luther and Calvin would know that they could never make the Bible happen. They couldn't do that. They were servants of the Word, not lords over it. They're servants. And as servants of the word, they do their work, but they do it in a way that's marked by prayer and in recognition that this is ultimately God's word and God's work to be done. I have all these quotes here, I'm not going to read them. But Bart says in multiple places, prayer takes precedence over any other exegetical activity, any other activity of reading the Bible. It's prayer. Why? Because prayer as an activity of reading the Bible, as a discipline of reading the Bible, does what? It shows us and it demonstrates to us that we are dependent on something other than ourselves to make this thing happen. Why do we come to the Bible? 
We come to the Bible because we are hungry and thirsty for the living God. That's the encounter that you have when you come to the Bible. We're hungry and thirsty for the living God. And I can't make God do things. Yeah, you just, he, he is free. That, that, that's at the core of the being of God. God is free. He's not constrained by anything outside of himself. But within his own being, he constrains himself to be self-giving in acts of love. God loves to give himself away. That, that's what the Bible tells us from beginning to end. He loves to give himself away. And those who come in a posture of prayer, anticipating that there's an encounter that's going to happen right here. There's an encounter with these ancient words ever new where God's going to speak and make his presence known, whether it's in preaching, whether it's in Bible study, or whether it's in the morning over, over a cup of coffee. God, make yourself known. Make your presence known to us in Jesus Christ. That Now, we're going to get into principles of, ex, of exposition next week. Going to go through all the kind of... But I would, I, Bart would fail you. The Reformers would fail you. I would fail you if we didn't start this whole discussion with an emphasis on the priority of prayer and a recognition that for all of our labor and our hard work, we are dependent on something outside of ourselves to make the Bible happen and be alive. Okay? What time is it? It's, i got to be done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your word. Um, thank you, Lord, for men and women in the history of the church who model for us a kind of consistent pattern of love and devotion to you, to your church, in service of your word. Let us be hearing agents, Lord. Open our ears so that we could hear. And Lord, in the opening of our ears, Lord, would you change and grow our hearts in love and affection. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.